Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. Before we get into our show, I want to share with you a few facts about Florida, which will shed some light on just how crazy our guest is today. Florida is 65,758 square miles, and the distance from Pensacola, which is located in the Panhandle, to Key West is 832 miles, if you travel by road. We all know it's not the biggest state, but it's definitely substantial. Anyone who's driven through Florida knows it feels like an eternity just to get across the state line. Now, imagine walking that distance. Just think what a weird journey that would be. Today we're speaking with Kent Russell and his latest book in the Land of Good Living, A Journey to the Heart of Florida, is an account of an improbable thousand mile journey on foot into the heart of modern Florida, the state that Russell calls America Concentrate, a state that seemed to embody America's divided soul. In a review for The Atlantic, writer Lauren Groff called the book brilliant adding, I've never read an account of our gorgeous and messed up state that is more appropriate match of form and function. The spirit of Don Quixote presides over its buddy trip plotline. This feels like both the real and the true story of Florida. Kent is best known for his debut book, I Am Sorry to Think I Have Raised a Timid Son, which documents his personal journey as a child. He has contributed to GQ Magazine, N Plus One, Harper's Magazine, The Believer, and The New Republic. Welcome, Kent, to the SoFlo Weird Show. I think you're the quintessential weirdo and perfect for this podcast. (laughs) What a compliment. Thank you so much for having me. I'm quite excited to be here. Thank you. So take me back to the moment that you're sitting there with your friend and you decide to entertain this absolutely absurd thought of traveling the entire state on foot. (laughs) Certainly. You were drinking, right? (laughs) I mean, it goes without saying that's, you know, the only way that such a thought can begin to enter your head. But yeah, uh, one of the uh, principal characters in the book, uh, Noah, an old friend of mine back when I went to the University of Florida and lived in a kind of rundown university adjacent housing. He was my old neighbor then. And then I came up to New York City after college. And he also came up here and through a lot of kind of unfortunate events, he found himself living with me for a brief period of time. He and I were sitting there and indeed we were having a few uh, silver bullets, you know, not going to lie. But uh, we, we were just sitting there and watching ESPN, whatever was on. And it was, I think, the Little League World Series and a commercial came on for uh, the film adaptation of Cheryl Strayed's Wild, which is, you know, a very famous pedestrian journey up the Pacific Coast Trail. And, we, you know, uh, Noah kind of was, you know, watching that commercial. Then he looked at me, then turned back to the television, then turned back to me, you know, and he said, that's it. That's what we're going to do. That's, you know, what you will do to write about and that's what I will do because he was in kind of like an unemployed funk at the time. And uh, so we, yeah, we both just started to get really excited thinking of the idea that we could, if not recreate, then in the same spirit as Florida's old governor and Senator Lawton Childs, who launched his political career uh, by, you know, embarking upon this pedestrian journey across and down Florida, a thousand mile journey where he just shook hands with 
basically, you know, every everybody that's really what, uh, you know, set him forth on his political career and also gave him, you know, the right to say that he was maybe the person who understood Florida the best because he had seen it at that kind of granular level. And, you know, uh, then we thought, oh, man, what? there's no way we can do this. We can't, you know, physically do this. Like, what were we thinking? And then the third member of uh, our trio, a guy named Glenn, who I knew from a writing program, who had become a documentary film producer, he listened to us explain the idea and he said, that's perfect. I also am in this kind of rut in my life. I want to direct something, not just produce it. So, you know, this that's what we'll do. We'll walk it and we'll film it and we'll, you know, create a perfect encapsulation of Florida and we'll, you know, become rich and famous by doing that. Because ultimately that's the genesis of any Florida story, right? Is how can you go down to Florida and find paradise or how can you get rich and famous? And so that's what we decided to do. Now, it's really hard to categorize Florida because each town or region is so different. It, you know, they're like states within a state with completely different demographics. I get that from this book. This really captures the diversity, the strangeness, the danger, and, and even the kindness. Now, although you're native to Florida, how did you perceive yourself on this journey as an outsider looking in or one in the same? Now, that's a fantastic question. And I it, it depended, I guess, on where we were in Florida, uh, where I could either feel at home and kind of really consonant with my surroundings, or I could just feel totally like a fish out of water. And yeah, that that is absolutely due to the the various ways that you can break Florida down. I mean, the 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 first and most obvious one, right, is it's almost like a Neapolitan ice cream, where you can break it down in three big categories of you know North Central and South Florida. And but then even within those, you know, Jacksonville is different than Pensacola, Gainesville is different than uh, Orlando. Fort Myers is different from Miami. So you can continue to subdivide Florida, you know, into at least six or maybe even more, you know, little, little balkanized uh, parts of it. And yeah, so when I, when we, when we began in the panhandle, you know, that is well outside of my normal experience of Florida. You know, the few times I, I don't even really think I'd ever been to, you know, Panama city or maybe I'd been to Pensacola, but that to me, that truly felt like, you know, uh, here I am almost like a quasi like a ethnographer or something, you know, working through this part of Florida that's, you know, Florida it's seen as like palmettos and uh, pine groves and shrimping. And that's a far cry from, you know, Miami and South Beach and all the rest of it. So yeah, like it, it, the panhandle certainly felt like the most foreign to me, but also the most fascinating. And, you know, Central Florida, as I mentioned, I went to the University of Florida. So familiar with Gainesville, you know, used to go to Orlando. I used to intern at the Orlando Weekly when I was in college. So I have a pretty good experience with Orlando. And then of course, as we drew closer and closer to South Florida, that's when I felt that I was truly home. But yeah, I mean, that's truly one of the more interesting things about Florida is depending on who you ask from which part of the state, you can hear an answer as to you know what is Florida that is just wildly different from somebody within the state. Okay, so this wasn't originally about writing a book, was it? Mm -hmm. It was about no. making a documentary? Yes. Now, in this story, you kind of become, parts of it, you become part of the story, living and experiencing Florida in its most raw form. Mm -hmm. Was that the intention from the beginning to be part of the story, or did it kind of like morph into the concept? At least from the documentary side, you know, no. the That was very much outward facing, you know, the people we meet along the way, the places we go, you know, the things we find along the roadside. 
But because, as I mentioned, I'm you know a freelance writer by trade, there's part of me that can't turn that uh, reportorial you know aspect of myself off. So even as we were walking and filming and you know putting our hearts into making an actual documentary about this, there was the part of me that just uh, you know was consistently taking notes. At first, I was taking notes on a little paperback notebook that just rapidly disintegrated in my sweaty, sweaty hands. So I had to I had to become very adept at taking notes on my phone. I just can't help but do that. And so along the way, you know, I would take notes. I would kind of write down what was happening, and I realized maybe much to the chagrin of my friend Glenn, you know, whose whose heart was totally set on the documentary, I realized as we walked further and further, I was like, oh, I have kind of a golden parachute here. I have have at least the makings of something written if I uh, ever wanted to do that. And, you know, me and Glenn especially will joke about it now because he still has the documentary footage. He kind of gives me a hard time about how I got the the better out of that deal by kind of like sneaking a, a book narrative out of it but you know maybe one day maybe one day we'll we'll he'll go back and we'll uh we'll finally piece all the footage together yeah i think i think we should so it took you 17 months that's how long it no 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 it, it took us four months from um september uh yeah like the last week of august first week of september until uh christmas basically and you know it, we could have done it in a shorter span of time but it wasn't like we were just trying to rush through and you know depending on what we would find along the way that would mean we would have to you know spend an extra day here an extra two days right. or something right. like that so yeah let's go to the format of the mm-hmm. book i love that this book reads like a novel and then it reads like a screenplay and yet there's it's like a history book for me, it had wonderful laugh out loud moments and like, oh my gosh, moments. Um, mm. Some of your personal antics and others from <laughs> your personal characters, like that Jesus guy from yeah. the Holy Land who was so far from saintly. <laughs> with one of your outstanding characters that you really liked. What really finally put us at ease, I think, is when we encountered Captain Dale. He's actually from Miami originally and he uh, was, but was from the old Miami, you know, the the pre kind of Muriel Butliff Miami. And he had moved up to Apalachicola, Carabelle uh, region of kind of the armpit of Florida. And he was just so accommodating and just truly a, a wild character, a guy who was a, a, a nuisance alligator wrangler, which for those of you who may be unfamiliar with that term, a nuisance alligator in Florida, or at least in certain Florida counties is any alligator that it wanders onto your property, basically that becomes a nuisance and it can be destroyed. And so he would, he was the guy who went and did that despite having not much uh, training or any training at all, really. And uh, he allowed us to go along with him on his, you know, nuisance alligator hunts and things like that. And that was really when we began to feel like, okay, people, for whatever reason, even though we looked, we already looked, you know, haggard and we're all sweaty and our clothes are already falling apart. And we've been camping by the side of the road for the most part. And even, you know, we, we very often at that very beginning, the first kind of fifth of the journey, let's say we felt as though we didn't really have our grounding and like, Oh God, what are we doing? Was this a terrible mistake? And yeah, when we got around Dale and we realized, oh, this is really compelling stuff. People see a camera and they they just kind of open up to us. It's a little unsettling watching a man hook alligators and use a bang stick to, you know, attempt to take care of the nuisance alligators. That was when we, we realized like, oh man, this, this can actually work. Uh, we, we may be able to pull this off. 
let's talk about the most dangerous parts of the journey and basically just how much of a crazy idea that's walking forward. <laughs> now, I found out, according to a report from Business Insider, of the worst cities for pedestrians, oh, yeah. Florida was eight, eight of the top 10. They had yeah. eight cities out of the top 10, and that's as of 2019. Did this like fleck of a thought even cross your mind, or did you even know, or it's like, I'd rather not know? I did know. Um, oh, okay, and, that's bad. <laughs> yes, I, I did my uh, my due diligence. But no, I had been aware of that uh, aspect of Florida for a while, actually, since maybe about 2011. Uh, I had known that year after year in all the pedestrian safety surveys, you know, Florida either had the top three or like you're saying, like 80% of the top uh, most dangerous cities. We definitely knew the danger that we were embarking upon where, you know, Florida being kind of a mega state that really only began to grow with like the arrival of the interstate and things like that. So it doesn't have that pedestrian infrastructure. There's not a lot of sidewalks until you get into like the heavy, uh, you know, urban parts of the state. So even though we knew kind of what we were getting into, we didn't truly know until we finally got on the ground that very first day. And that's when you understand, like, you may have like this uh, 50 pound bag on your back. You can't stray too far away from the sloping road shoulder because, you know, that's just this uneven kind of scrub ground that is also full of like red ant piles and stuff like that. So you to, to save both your ankles and like uh, your shins from being bitten by insects, you kind of had to stay very close to the shoulder where, you know, 18 to 24 inches away from you, like a, like a Chevy truck is just blowing your hair back, you know? So the one thing that we quickly learned, we just couldn't put our heads down even for a second, not simply because you wanted to make sure, you know, we were walking against traffic. So you want to make sure that you can see the cars coming, but we, we had to keep our heads up because we figured that if we looked into windshields and made eye contact with people, that meant they wouldn't kill us, you know, accidentally or otherwise. So it became this like strange, like a, uh, you know, quasi alchemical process of like, okay, I have to like stare as hard as I can through this windshield until like the, the sheer force of my, uh, my stare causes this person to like look up and see me. But yeah, we knew, but we didn't know. But over time, we developed, you know, our kind of system of doing things. And any days in which we could actually encounter a sidewalk, a bike path or anything like that, those were truly blessed days indeed. The other factor to this is you went through three different buggies, right? Yeah. Tell me about that because they had different names, <laughs> right? Rolling Thunder or something? We weren't doing this to kind of like find ourselves and overcome trials. We we're just doing it to, you know, we want to make a documentary. So even though uh, Florida is incredibly flat, obviously, it's still not fun to walk, uh, you know, on hard, hard asphalt with like 50 pounds of camping gear and film gear on your back. So very early on in the trip, I said nuts to this, like, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to become like a champion hiker here. And when we were in a mini mall parking lot, I just kind of unscrupulously took a shopping cart out of there and dumped uh, my gear in it and a lot of the other guys gear as well. And yeah, that was rolling thunder, which we pushed along the side of the road for, you know, a pretty hefty portion of the panhandle. And one thing that maybe you don't realize when you're driving along the side of these state roads is the shoulder is actually kind of 
graded at a steep slope. So if you're trying to push a shopping cart with, say, 150 pounds of gear in it, something like that, you're really torquing your body to keep it upright and probably doing great damage to your tendons. So uh, after a while, uh, we said, you know, we can't even keep going on with this shopping cart. And luckily, I was able to convince the shopkeeper at the uh, Sop Choppy General Store if they had any kind of conveyance they could give us. And they gave us an antique Italian baby buggy, uh, something that looked like it rolled out of an Adams Family movie, you know, this kind of strange, quasi-gothic looking buggy. We pushed that for many hundreds of miles and you know, fielded some very concerned questions from passersby about where's the baby that's supposed to go in that. Yeah, when that finally uh, succumbed to the rigors of the road, uh, when I was in Gainesville, I bought a jogging stroller off of Craigslist. That got me about, as far as the Everglades, my feet just couldn't take anymore, and I was able to persuade uh, some swamp people to trade me for their mobility scooter, which helped me get across the Everglades. But uh, they were my, my trusted steeds, Rolling Thunder, Jogabai Thunder, uh, Walkabai Thunder. And, you know, I, I couldn't have done it without them. You kind of already talked a little bit about the physical toll and the mental yeah. toll that it might have taken on you guys. I mean, you knew Glenn and Noah before this, but I mean, <laughs> how well did you know them? You're living and breathing and camping and doing everything with them. And I yeah. know at times it got tense. So not only a mental toll, as well as a physical toll. Yes, no, that's a, you're absolutely right. And in fact, that was maybe, aside from uh, my possibly getting hit by a car, that aspect of the trip was what concerned my family the most because, uh, you know, I'm otherwise kind of a loner. And uh, they were like, you understand you're going to be with people, you know, every minute of every day for the most part for four months. Like, I, we fully expect them to kill you, number one. Um, and, you know, maybe you'll just run away or whatever. And yeah, that was a true challenge. Both of the men who were on the trip are married. Uh, and they were like, these four months were like taking you on as our second spouse. And uh, <laughs> they were, they, we just were with each other so much. We got used to each other's smells. I mean, looking back on it now, it's, you know, the four-year anniversary of the actual walk itself, which makes me feel very old. But yeah, it's an ex it was more than just simply like a camaraderie. It's now like this shared experience and in a lot of ways, a kind of shared trauma that like I will never be able to fully explain to somebody, you know, no matter how hard I try. But I know that there are other people out there who know exactly how how that was. And we can just, you know, say two words to each other and it'll conjure up, you know, whatever happened to us on just one day of the trip, something like that. So, you know, it was very trying, uh, but it was also, you know, in the in the way that a lot of things that seem very difficult and very unpleasant in the in the moments that come to become like what your your most cherished memories like that's kind of what happened uh, after the, the strenuousness of that journey. Now, there's a lot of misconceptions of Florida, you know, on the surface, people mm -hmm. think winter getaway, a place where people have come to heal, retirement, paradise, great real estate. But reading your book and, you know, you go back mm -hmm. and do a deep dive into history, history tells us nobody really wanted Florida. It was deemed uninhabitable. What other misconceptions or, let's say, real truths? Yeah, I think what was most striking about the history, I mean, aside from what you rightfully pointed out earlier, uh, that, you know, whatever kind of promise 
lures you here like you're a Spanish conquistador and you think that you can, you know, find gold and new world riches or you're a, a a 19th century northern developer and you see all of this pristine coastline that you think you can turn into, you know, beautiful resorts or you're a snowbird from, you know, uh, Ohio and you see a Sunday supplement advertisement that says you can, you know, own your own personal Venice in Venice, Florida for, you know, $40 a month or whatever. Like there's that, there's that first part that lures you there. And then there is the reality of Florida. When you arrive, (laughs) you are kind of overcome by it. Like what happened to so many men who tried to develop the Everglades, uh, you know, in the 19th century and, you know, Hamilton Diston and Napoleon Bonaparte Broward and all these people who thought that they could turn the Everglades into, you know, a, a beautiful farming region and they just completely failed and destroyed themselves. That can That's one possibility. And then the other possibility is you arrive here and you see that what kind of lured you here is here in a way, but you may have to recreate what already exists here into what you wanted there to be here already. Uh, so you take somebody like, you know, Walt Disney who saw, you know, uh, kind of central Florida swampland and, uh, said like, you know, this is it, this is where I can have all this pristine property in which I can recreate my idea of like a kind of a wonderland or, you know, even, uh, developers like Henry Flagler or kind of, uh, real estate barons who would promise you, you know, certain suburban paradises where they would sell you on an idea and then they would have to create that idea once they actually got here. And for a lot of people, you just kind of uh, convinced yourself that like, yeah, this actually is paradise or this is what I thought it would be when in fact, it's kind of like a weird simulation of, uh, you know, what you originally expected. It seems like for a lot of people, Florida had held this attraction and then the reality of the place could break you or you could kind of bend the reality of the place to your whims and then, you know, kind of convince yourselves and others that like it always was the paradise you thought it was. What was your biggest takeaway from this trip? Oh man, I love Florida and I'm so proud of the state. Uh, you know, I don't, I haven't lived there for a while. I, and that brings me great shame a lot of the time, but I love the place. But I also have like a very strange ambivalence about it. And it, that's also kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book and wanted to go on the journey to begin with is for the longest time, you know, Florida didn't really have Floridians representing it in, you know, books or movies or, you know, just wider culture. It had kind of always been presented by people who are not from the state. And so I really wanted to kind of, you know, take a big swing and do this thing that, you know, Lawton Childs and I don't know who else really has ever done and try to really capture Florida, uh, you know, in a way that I hoped that a Floridian would be able to do it right. And yeah, I think my big takeaway was that like, I both love and loathe certain parts of the state, but that's in the same way that you kind of, you know, you love and loathe certain parts about, you know, the people closest to you, you know, your, your family members at Thanksgiving, let's say, or, you know, like Florida is not simply the punchline of a joke that a lot of people think it is. It does truly represent so many, uh, kind of currents that the rest of America experiences, but experiences them kind of after Florida. Florida is this kind of concentration of like cultural, socioeconomic, like immigration, uh, all these other kinds of trends that, you know, are happening in the country now or will happen soon. They are kind of concentrated and localized and happen here first. 
And yeah, I, my big takeaway was that, you know, I love this place. This place is insane. This place isn't just kind of crazy America, but it's also impending America. Uh, yeah. And Florida is maybe more important than most Americans realize, you know, uh, my sister is a a novelist and a short story writer, and she wrote a novel about Florida called Swamplandia. And uh, the one thing that she and I always joke about is that you really, you know, I not writing fiction and writing nonfiction kind of uh, have an advantage in writing about Florida because, you know, no matter what you try to think up of as a crazy fictional story about Florida, reality is going to outdo you like, uh, you know, a week after you think up that idea. Like the, the crazy events will always be able to outstrip whatever uh, whatever zany narrative you concoct. So it's it's good to be a, a non-fictional chronicler of this state because it, it never stops throwing, uh, you know, new and crazy stories at you. Well, thank you, Kent. I really appreciate you coming on the SoFlo Show. Oh, thank you so much. And um, thank you so very much. It was a a lot of fun and a great honor to be on the podcast. And uh, yeah, here's to more, uh, you know, whatever Florida throws up at us next. Hopefully, we'll be ready for it. That was Kent Russell talking about his incredible pedestrian journey through Florida and his book, In the Land of Good Living. We'd like to give a shout-out to the Miami Book Fair, who graciously provides us with these award-winning authors. If you'd like to hear more from Kent or any other participating author from the Miami Book Fair, go to miamibookfaironline.com, where all programs are available for streaming. We'll also provide a link from our website at soflowweird.com. Next, I thought I'd offer a few suggestions on places you can visit should you be looking for your own weird journey. If you're seeking a road trip through Florida, and most likely not on foot, I've chosen a few weird locations in five regions of the state. The North, South, Central, West, and the Panhandle. Now this is a tough call because there are so many off-the-beaten-path sites to visit in Florida, but I tried to choose just a few that might not be on your radar. First, we'll start in the South. If you're feeling a little frisky, consider a trip to the World Erotic Museum in Miami Beach. Now this is a serious and tasteful museum that's also a library and education think tank that uses its collection to illustrate the history of erotic art. In its collection, which spans from 300 BCE to the modern era, is sculptures, drawings, paintings, and photographs from famous artists like Rembrandt, Picasso, Salvador Dali, Fernando Botero, as well as Robert Mapplethorpe, Helmut Newton, and Bunny Yeager, just to name a few. It was founded in 2005 by erotic art collector Naomi Wilzig, and it contains over 1,000 pieces from her vast collection of 4,000 objects from different centuries, continents, and cultures. From folk art to fine art to pinups and pop culture relics, this is definitely a must stop if you're in the heart of Miami Beach. If you're in Central Florida on the east side, this is considered the Space Coast and for good reason. It's where the Kennedy Space Center is located on Cape Canaveral. The very location where the Apollo 11 space flight took place that first landed man on the moon over 50 years ago. 
Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. But before there was that one giant leap from mankind from Apollo 11, there was tragedy from Apollo 1. Your must-visit site is Launch Complex 34. This abandoned NASA launch site is now a memorial to a trio of astronauts who were killed there. While a number of rockets were fired into outer space from LC-34, it was the tragedy of the Apollo 1 project that secured the location's place in history. Despite a number of concerns over the amount of flammable material contained within the cockpit of the Apollo 1 command module, among other design flaws, the conical spacecraft went through a rehearsal launch in January of 1967. During the exercise, a small but fierce cabin fire ignited which led to a deadly chain of events, leaving all three astronauts, that of Command Pilot Virgil I. Gus Grissom, Senior Pilot Edward H. White II, and Pilot Roger B. Chafee, in the cabin, dead. In the years since those tragic events, LC-34 has become an area of paranormal fascination, with many believing the site is haunted. Visitors to the site have reported hearing loud screams emanating from the decaying launch pad, while others have reported becoming overcome with a sense of sadness and fear. Launch Complex 34 is open to the public and stands as a memorial to the fallen astronauts. Paranormal activity aside, a visit here makes for a fascinating walk through a dark piece of NASA history. Heading north in the Sunshine State, may we suggest a visit to one of North America's most prehistoric places, the Devil's Den Spring in Williston. If snorkeling or scuba diving is your thing, you'll want to check out this underground spring inside a dry cave. It has been home to many extinct animal fossils dating back to the Pleistocene age. In cold weather, water vapor rising from the surface of the river forms a visible plume above the entrance to the cave, which suggested a chimney from hell to early settlers, thus giving it the name Devil's Den. The cave expands below water level, a shape described as an inverted mushroom, to up to 200 feet or 61 meters across. The maximum depth of the cave reaches 54 feet, with the surface diameter being 120 feet. With crystal clear water, year-round 72-degree water temperatures, ancient rock formations with stalactites, fossil beds dating back 33 million years, and much more, it's a dive unlike any other open dive in Florida. If you happen to be traveling by boat on the Homosassa River on the west coast of Florida, maybe you've caught sight of a small man-made island with monkeys living on it and thought, hmm, how did they get there? Well, not by accident, that's for sure. It's called Monkey Island, and it serves as an Alcatraz for problematic primates. In 1964, a group of extra bad monkeys got sent to their very own monkey jail. There was once a small, shallow patch of water in the Homosassa River that was causing a serious boating problem, as the boats were always getting stuck. To prevent this from happening, land developer G.A. Fergie Ferguson asked crew members to throw some dirt on it. The crew members went crazy and threw enough dirt for a whole island. In an effort to make it look a little nicer, Fergie added a little lighthouse and some trees. He then went back to his main project nearby of building a wildlife attraction, currently Homosassa State Park. Part of the wildlife attraction was a monkey exhibit, and these monkeys were the worst. 
They stole candy from kids, broke into cars, and messed with the tourists. After being particularly fed up with these little menaces and wishing he could send them to Alcatraz, Fergie realized he already had the perfect monkey detention center, his little dirt island. Surrounded by buoys to deter boaters and bordered by water to deter escaping monkeys, the island made a perfect Alcatraz. To this day, the descendants of those bad monkeys live on Monkey Island, where boaters can safely view their antics. And finally, if you find yourself all the way up in the panhandle, you can stop along Highway 98 in Carabelle to take a picture in front of the world's smallest police station. Now, Charlie and I visited this spot on our weird Florida travels. Just across the bay from Apalachicola sits the world's smallest police station, the size of a phone booth. That's because it was converted from one in 1963. The town had only two police cars, and when one was on patrol, the other sat by the phone booth near the main intersection, where they could pretty much see everything going on. For many years, calls for the police came into the telephone in the booth, and arrested criminals were taken over the bridge to Apalachicola Jail. Of course, better radios and cell phone service put an end to the need for the phone booth. But one of the more recent telephone booths that were used is still in the center of town, across from the Chamber of Commerce. The original phone booth is on display at City Hall, between the World War II Museum and the police department just a couple of short blocks away. Our final thoughts on roads less traveled come from our inspirational force, which guides this podcast, Charlie Carlson. This is an excerpt from his Weird Florida book. Florida has many roads, though not enough to keep pace with the state's growing traffic demands. Some roads are fast lanes to tourist destinations, while others are scenic routes for those who want to meander and enjoy the sights. Then there are the detours around reality, roads into paranormal passageways, straight into Florida's weird side. These are the places with legends, the ones with scary lights that chase your car, or the ones where gravity is reversed. It's the legends that dare us to travel into these byways, where nocturnal phantoms ride translucent horses and ghostly screams emanate from the thick roadside woods. Maybe there's nothing to these tales about these trails, or maybe there is. Hey, we're just passing along a piece of legend. It's up to you whether you want to venture down one of these roads less traveled. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by searching at SoFloWeird. And please join our SoFlo Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlo Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance, and Lisa Pally, publicist for the Miami Book Fair. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.